0: Hello, and welcome to Never a Dull Moment, a talk show and podcast for angels and founders. Ziad of Boston Harbor Angels has fun with co-hosts and guests as they discuss and debate all topics from the world of startups and entrepreneurship. Welcome to the conversation. So happy to have you. Now, here they are.
1: Enjoy Um, the show. Let me jump into my question that I've been burning to ask you. So if someone's talking to you, a founder, a startup founder, or a business owner, is this good news? If they're actually talking to you and there is work being done, is that good news for them? Well, I certainly think so because one of the hardest
0: things that a founder will ever do is eventually get to some kind of a liquidity event. That's a really tough situation. And if they're starting to think about it and plan for that, that's probably the most intelligent thing that they can do in terms of being able to set themselves up to get to that liquidity event.
1: So if they're talking to you, basically now we're setting the stage is because you're helping them with their liquidity event that comes in multiple ways. You specialize in everything that's not going public, right? Well,
0: um, uh A little bit tighter than that actually we do not get involved with uh venture capital or minority investments we specialize
1: in uh, majority recaps and outright sale of the company okay so you you okay so uh the second burning question is when should someone start thinking of selling their business you know, if they even, they could own it a hundred percent, which we call a lifestyle business, or they could have a bunch of investors like us, Boston Harbor Angels, whatever, mm-hmm. at some point they, sh- they start thinking, okay, I have to prepare to exit, to sell, to have a liquidity event. When should that be? Well, it
0: really uh, needs to start as early as possible in the journey of developing your, your company, because When you think about it, things like structuring contracts, employment agreements, making sure that you have your board minutes lined up and all of your documentation around formation of the company, all of these things are going to be necessary when you get to the point where you are going to enter discussions with a potential acquirer or a source of capital. So you need to really structure the business in a way that you don't have to change when you start those conversations later on in your business life, Uh, especially things like contracts, uh, employment agreements, making sure that your intellectual property is well protected, uh, and also uh, in terms of your financials. Uh, If you can structure your financial setup in a way that maps to a similar company that's in a public sector. Uh, so that a buyer will readily understand the structure of your financials. That is a, a great asset when you're talking to those buyers and uh, will enable the sale to happen a lot easier. So, And you don't want to have multiple changes in how you're structuring your books as you go through your business career. So you need to set up those books early to map to the public companies that are in your
1: space. So, okay, this is fascinating. So you, I mean, technically you should start preparing to sell the business the day you start it. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's right, yeah. By having clean books, by keeping good records, by having all your legal documents all all done right, uh, by basically thinking that at any moment someone could come and do, do due diligence on you and they're not going to find any red flags that they might turn away, right? I mean, this whole this is the big due diligence. When you're ready to sell, they say, okay, open up. And you should not be afraid of doing that.
0: That's absolutely correct. But, I mean, there are certain sets of circumstances that do crop up uh, that are not great news for a buyer. Those sorts of things, maybe it's a lawsuit or maybe it's some kind of uh, um, staff disagreement, those those things happen. And buyers understand that. And uh, you just need to make sure that when you do get in a conversation with a buyer that you bring those things up early uh, to develop a, a trusting relationship with the buyer. But, you know, those things do happen. So you're never going to have a completely clean set of uh, circumstances to put in front of a buyer, maybe you do, but it's, uh, it's uncommon. Uh, But, um, you know, when you do have those
1: sets of circumstances, you want to bring up any troubling things early in the process. You don't want the buyer to discover them. We we do the same with investment. We say, look, just don't let us find something you're trying to hide or that sends such a bad message of trust, right? It's a, it's a, how much? how much emotions trust psychology is involved in the buying process as in parallel to financials and all that all that stuff
0: well look the, the the ultimate situation uh when you're contemplating the sale of your business and you start talking to potential buyers the the way that you optimize your exit is by speaking to multiple buyers and building a competitive environment, that tension between the buyers, because you really don't want to have your valuation established purely on your financial history. You want to make sure that you're telling the story about your business that has the buyer looking through the windshield, not in the rearview mirror, right? Because that's where the value comes from. Every buyer is going to look at your business in a different manner. All the intangibles are going to be assessed based on their strategic thought process and what they can do with the business after acquisition. So multiple parties coming to the table will have different valuations
1: for your business. Okay, I I like that. It's, It's looking forward. So they're buying not for what you've done, but for what you could do in the future. Yeah. Um, Now, of course, they're
0: reluctant to pay for that. They they want to pay for what you've done, not for what they bring to the table. (laughs) And that's the key. The key is to have a competitive process where multiple parties are bidding for the same property. And that way you can start absorbing some of that strategic foreground that you see out of the windshield. As
1: part of the enterprise value of the sale of the company. Okay, that's excellent. And and you so as a business owner or a f- startup founder, ultimately you need to understand the parameters that those people are going to look at. Like what's important to them and what are the matrix matrix or matrices that uh, uh, are are important what unit measures they look at revenue profits mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. customers growth regional growth right those are important Correct. absolutely absolutely
0: especially in the in the world of of uh, software saas companies you know there is a, a set defined mechanism and measurements and kpis uh, you know you you're going to have to if you are a saas company You are going to be asked for buyers to produce something that looks like a um, uh, revenue by customer, by month, by product for the last three years. Because every buyer has their own way of calculating churn. And the only way they can really get that data is by having those kinds of uh, complex views on your revenue stream uh, that they will come through and really get to the metrics in the manner that they see fit
1: and they and you need to understand your own business i mean it's astonishing how (laughs) how uh, and it's hard i mean we're we're, um, entrepreneurs founders uh, is it's not hard it's not easy they need to raise money and run the business and deal with customers and sometimes some things fall by the wayside where they don't understand their own business as much as they should um and and someone like you could help them you spend a lot of time pre buyers right just to help them understand their own business getting it ready get things lined up and whatever wherever there are holes you say okay well I'll go get that information
0: absolutely correct yeah you know, we work with a lot of uh, companies you know in the uh, 1 to 2 million dollars sometimes even earlier than that uh, revenue range uh, setting themselves up, you know we'll work with them for two, three, four years before uh, they're ready to uh, to hit the market uh one of the the biggest things that we see as problematic is this whole notion of revenue. When you think about revenue, if you're if you're doing uh, saAS that's uh, recurring revenue is the most valuable form of revenue in the eyes of a buyer obviously the predictability and the low risk of that revenue creates a higher valuation uh, versus something like consulting or one-time development or uh, training. Those kinds of revenue streams are much less valuable. So you wanna make sure as a founder, you're separating out those the revenue streams and can keep track of them because buyers are gonna be interested in, you know, in the more valuable ones. And if you don't separate them out, They're going to apply an aggregate multiple to your revenue stream, whereas if you do separate them out and most of your revenue is recurring, you're going to end up with a higher valuation. So having those tracking mechanisms in place early in the business so that you can keep track of the individual revenue streams, maybe it's by product, maybe it's by service or uh, software, whatever it might be,
1: keep those separated out so that you can track them. And. If you don't have recurring revenue, get some. <laughs> get some. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and, recurring and, revenue is
0: three to eight times more valuable than one-time revenue.
1: Okay. All right. And 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 track record. So, what's recurring revenue? How do you prove it's recurring? Like, do you need it? You said three-year track record. Does that is that enough to show well, that it's been recurring?
0: Obviously, the, the the first thing is what's the length of contract with your with your customers. Uh, you know, you might have a five year contract or a three year contract that's paid annually in advance. Uh, those sorts of things are valuable to a buyer. Um, and so, how do you, and how contract. Do you so the
1: important part is if you have recurring revenue that's not under contract, does that count? oh it does absolutely but obviously
0: if it is contracted there's a little less risk involved in the downstream years uh but certainly uh if you have a track record so uh a, a client might have been producing recurring revenue for a number of years and uh, you don't expect them to go away if you can prove that uh through past billings uh then you know you're in good shape and that's where I say, you know, this by-product, by-month, by-customer for the last three years is um, is an important piece of information to have.
1: So if I go eat brunch at the same restaurant every Sunday, am I recurring revenue to them? Uh, in a way, yes, but... Um, I could switch. The, the, the stickiness
0: isn't there, right? Unless you happen to... Really have uh, a a bent for that particular type of food, right? It's it's the stickiness. It's that's really that really counts. So having an application that people depend on, that's that is mission critical, is also very important in that whole uh, making sure that your churn rate, or or customer retention rate, or net revenue retention rates are. Uh, where they should be with respect to buyers. and then your customers, if
1: their data is on your app, we're talking about SaaS. That's also a barrier to 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 leaving you. Like they're they're not going to pick up their stuff and leave. Uh, that's right. Um, and um, so, give us a give us a, some 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 numbers on. I know once we spoke about the average number of years for a business to sell. Uh, can you give us some insight on on market data that you see around? Yeah, I mean
0: we track this on a monthly basis uh, with our uh, with our own uh, podcast uh, web seminar every month. And I think the last month our uh, the average length or, or of time that a business has been in existence before selling was seventeen years. Okay, now that's is... specific to tech, right? All we do is tech and tech-enabled services companies, sell-side engagements.
1: That's all we do. So, but that's uh, that's uh, owned by in does that does that count startups and lifestyle businesses and single-owner businesses? So that's yep. combined, right? Yeah, I mean, we get
0: essentially you know, there's three kinds of uh, companies that we see a, a lot. The first is when somebody has reached a retirement age and they don't have a successor for their business. So they're trying to figure out what's the next step, right? Uh the other kind is when a founder is a, a deep technologist, but is not a sales and marketing expert. So the sales have gone up and then plateaued as they get to the point where they they're really not uh uh well versed in you know growing the company to from 5 to 50 million so those kinds of people need help with sales and marketing and uh, need to be in somebody else's hands to make that business really fly and the third kind are the 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 guys that are debating whether to take a, a venture round or uh, or sell the company because it's growing really fast and they feel like they've got a bull by the horns but they're not sure how to control it uh, so you know those are really and, the really the and kinds. how
1: do you deal with governance so if it's a sole proprietor or a, a business owner that controls everything they just you, you you work with them and they say okay I found an offer I like thank you you're on then you have to deal with accounting and taxes and other things but what if there is a board where there's not a single group that has a majority so there's a VC on the board there are other things does mm-hmm. that add complexity? Well, it does add complexity,
0: and but it's it's really part of the preparation uh, for for going to market, for taking your company out for sale. Uh, it, it in terms of making sure that everybody is aligned with what the outcome needs to be to get everybody happy, right? So those discussions need to take place in the preparation phase, so that. Everybody understands the parameters. They understand why you're doing it, and they understand what constitutes a successful outcome. We find uh, we have experienced uh, greed coming in, right? So we <laughs> we get we we get expectations. Said, okay, look, if we get a twenty million dollar offer, we're we're great. Let's let, yeah, we'll we'll be okay with that. So we go out, we find them a twenty million dollar offer. In fact, twenty five million dollar offer in one case. And uh, we take it back and they say, hmm, I wonder if we could get 27. So we go back and uh, and we renegotiate the the LOI and sure enough, we get 27. And then they come back and say, gee, 27, that sounds great. Maybe we can get 35. And uh, eventually you get to the point where the buyer says, you know what, enough, I'm
1: done, I'm out. Uh, and so they're you- out, it's not that they back; they go back to the earlier offer, they're out no. completely. They're out because they don't necessarily want
0: to work with with yeah, that those you, you've people. actually ruined the reputation and the the
1: relationship with the buyer at that point. just need to be very careful of that agreed and and uh, I read an article about also hubris and we've all been burnt by situations where someone was arrogant or greedy <laughs> or um and and so um how long does it take? to exit we have a lot of companies that come and they say well we're in great shape and google will buy us in a year or <laughs> in two years or we're in talks with some strategic partner and they could be a good buyer and then the the reaction is always well have you started negotiations so in your experience let's say the company is doing well and then someone starts talking to them now about or you st- or they engage you and say, "Okay, we want to sell." Mm-hmm. From that minute to the minute they sell, how much do you estimate it takes?
0: I'd say on average, it's a uh, about a nine month process. It you know generally between six to twelve months. We've had clients. I, I sold a company last year where uh, they from start to finish, from the day they signed our contract. To the time they signed the sale documents, was four and a half months. That's short, uh, but and not typical. We have also had clients where we've gotten a, uh, uh, gotten into a situation where the offers that came in, or there weren't any offers, or they, but the offers that did come in were not where they wanted to be. So, but during the process, you learn a lot about your company, right? First nice. off you're gonna you're gonna look at your company in a different light. You're gonna look at it from an outsider's point of view. And you're also gonna be talking to people who are looking at your business and giving you opinions about what they value and what they don't value. Uh, you might also engage with many companies who are not necessarily buyers, but might be really good commercial partners for distribution or, you know, whatever uh, that you can take advantage of. So there's a number of different things that come out of working the process that uh, you can build back into your business. So in some cases, you you don't want to sell immediately. You take those lessons that you've learned from the market, build the company in a manner that is more applicable to the community of buyers that you're going to approach, and then go back out again. We've done this uh, a number of times. We have a, a hiatus program uh, that we put our clients through if, uh, if they get into that situation. Sometimes they'll go through it three or four times before they get sold. We had one company that uh, sold after seven years, after three different uh, 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 attempts at going to market. But they
1: got a great exit at the end of it. And it's not done until it's done. Like Until the deal is closed, everything could still go wrong. Absolutely. I mean, this is an
0: emotional roller coaster. A roller coaster for uh, for the CEO of the, the companies. Uh, especially when you get into due diligence, you know, when when uh, everybody is calling your business ugly, and uh, you're waiting for a retrade, and uh, the market is, uh, you know, there's something going on in the market, or you're waiting for somebody to push a button in, in uh, or launch a missile in, you know, some other country. And there's all sorts of things that can go wrong. You know, due diligence is where deals go to die if you're not careful. You need to be very careful about preparing for it and making sure that you spend as little possible time in due diligence as you can, but it's a, an emotional nightmare.
1: Uh, and you that's why if that. you prepare, like I know in the world of angel investing founders who are prepared, who have a deal room that has everything, they don't have to go find something. All the questions, the, the answers are right there. And it's not at the end of the day, rocket science, right? Like, Everybody knows what you need legal finance ip uh, um so preparing is 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 something that is not that complicated but yet oftentimes people don't do it
0: it's only complicated if you're scrambling around trying to get stuff done at the last minute right if if you don't have board minutes because you forgot to record them over the last 3 years and now you've got your attorney trying to generate board minutes from the last three years, or you're looking for customer contracts that, uh, oh, geez, you, you've got one, but it's only got one signature on it. Uh, oh, now I have to go back to the cu- customer to get the signature. You know Those kinds of things can be just a nightmare in due diligence. And it really creates uh, an air of distrust in the eyes of the buyer. And that's what
1: you've got to be really careful of. Yeah. Plus,
0: it extends due diligence. Which is uh, not a good time
1: for. And then you the you founder. you send the message that you're not highly organized. You exactly. You don't have things lined up, and and so what are things you don't like? Or you you I know you guys deal with tech, so I'm assuming you don't do biotech and other things. But are there like uh, are there deals that don't work for you or or what setup like too small too large? Uh, what are the things you don't you try to avoid? Well, there's there's certain sets of circumstances that we find business
0: uh, uh, owners lead themselves into that are suboptimal for buyers. So first is having customer concentrations. Right so having one large customer and 80 small customers you know the risk of losing that one big customer and destroying your revenue stream in the eyes of a buyer is high but right, so that's one thing the second thing that uh, we try to sort of steer people away from is basing your pricing on uh, on a per unit basis that's related to hardware so think about for instance an IoT company Right, that sells based on the number of edge sensors that they that they sell. the The buyer is going to look at that and they're going to say, "Oh, uh, so this is all one-time revenue and it's hardware-based." So you know, make sure that you 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 have something that has a decent gross margin, and again, that has a recurring revenue stream. That's a much better way to take it on.
1: Okay. And another thing that is interesting because what's hot, the trends. So for us, when we invest, whatever is hot right now in terms of the acquisition world is not necessarily imp- uh, interesting because the company is going to need at least five to seven years to grow and develop. So if, if AI is hot today, that doesn't mean it's going to be hot in seven years. Mm-hmm. So how do you see trends because I know once you, you, I saw you guys published uh, uh, a paper on different trends that are hot for m a It was fantastic. Um, where do trends fall in your world? So every
0: year, uh, Quorum produces our top 10 trends that are driving tech mergers and acquisitions. This is not the Gartner report for CTOs of, you know, what's, what's the greatest thing that you can do to help your business productivity? This is what, is what are the imperatives that are driving change in the world of technology today? And if you position your company in relation to those top 10 trends, buyers are going to pay attention. And that's really the key. You know, buyers are busy, right? I was talking to a head of M&A for a large uh, public company not more well, about five weeks ago. And he was telling me that he had 127 opportunities on his desk that had come in that week. Oof! Right. So it's imperative when you're talking to these guys that you have that armor-piercing soundbite that gets their intention right up front, because otherwise you're just going to go straight into the discarded section of the email, and he'll never get uh, never get any any time on their calendar um but it's uh you know it the so aligning yourself with these top 10 trends are really the key to getting that attention um we we ha- we run a seminar called emerge briefing that goes through all of those top 10 trends if anybody's interested so, in so is if you
1: those are you saying that well if you're a brand new company there's nothing you can align yourself with because you're still too early you're figuring things out you're saying if you were 5 years into it and the hot thing is ai and you have ai in your business but you never mention it to anybody and 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 now you should brand it a bit more is this one of the things one can do Yeah, yeah, so telling your story in relation to,
0: it's not a question of changing your business model, it's how you tell the strategic story to the buyer uh, that needs to relate to those uh, top 10 trends. Um, Now, the the other thing that you can do is take a look at the past uh, year's top 10 trends, and you can see that there's certain sets of resiliency uh, as it runs through there. So things like focused IT services, Right, so IT services companies that have specific expertise in an arena, uh, maybe it's a vertical, maybe it's a uh, maybe it's Salesforce expertise or you know whatever it might be, but it's got to be focused. That's a that's a good place to be. Uh, the, the healthcare continuum, right? Anything that involves uh, how did the guy put it from from twinkle to wrinkle. <laughs>
1: Okay, that's a good one. (laughs) I'm going to to keep that one. Yeah,
0: yeah. So uh, you know, the 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 whole healthcare continuum is something that uh, if you're involved in that uh, in in that sort of development world, that's that's a good place to be. Uh, Composite commerce is something that you know is for
1: that's really come out over the last three or four years, but it's going to last for a while. How long does a trend last? Like, if someone says, "Oh, the, the, today AI or robotics is hot," in general, this is not like a yearly thing. I mean, there's, there is there yeah. is the buzz around blockchain or whatever, but a real trend lasts. In your opinion, how long? If you were to guess, I would say probably five years,
0: maybe longer. Uh, you know, things okay. like if you think about uh, one of the big trends right now is blue collar software, right? So, people being able to uh, be knowledge workers that were never knowledge workers before and a lot of that stems from edge devices like cell phones and wi-fi networks and you know things that just weren't there 10 years ago or weren't prolific 10 years ago Uh, that's a trend that's going to continue because data coming in from the edge and going back out again to the edge is uh, extremely important so you know that's a trend
1: that's going to last for
0: another what's
1: the earliest you got involved in a business
0: Oh, I've uh, I've worked with founders that are
1: working on their initial business plan. Really, <laughs> it's like <laughs> it, that's excellent. So it's like saying, I don't know, you're you're building a house. You just have the land and the architect, and you already have the real estate agent to sell it. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, okay. you know, we at Quorum at all the deal guys are ex tech CEOs. That have run their own businesses and sold them before moving into investment banking. So we've kind of been through the process ourselves uh, and learned a lot of lessons. You can still see the scars on my
1: back. <laughs> and then you also probably love it, like it's there's a passion, okay. uh, a piece. Because if you ran a business, you sold it, you know how it's done, and you want to help. Um, so, what's it? Let's. A uh, t- little technical question that uh, has been bothering me for years. What's the difference between a business broker and an investment banker?
0: Nomenclature?
1: <laughs> yeah, okay. So, it's the same. It's... Well,
0: I, I mean, I, I think an investment banker is probably a, a wider description. Uh, you know, the, an investment banker might be. Uh, somebody who is looking at more of uh, IPOs and uh, okay. you know ra- raising capital those sorts of things that um, a business broker won't won't necessarily be involved in
1: so a business broker oftentimes are smaller businesses uh, that are straight up sale there's no investment involved in the sale like you don't need investors and things like that yeah Wow Martin I could talk to you for hours and I hope you you come you come you join us again to discuss the this topic because it's really really important I mean we're Boston Harbor Angels we're in the world of angel investing so we want an exit at the end so uh, so money can circulate and gets invested again in great founders and we always need to for us to understand and also for the founders to understand What is an exit? Sometimes they underestimate how complicated, how important, how stressful, uh, all that. So can you, uh, we didn't do an introduction, so can you tell us who you are (laughs) and and what you do?
0: Yeah, sure. Martin Lowry here. I'm uh, with the Quorum Group. We are a uh, investment banking company that deals purely with selling technology and technology-enabled services companies. We've been around for 36 years and uh, have um, uh, done nearly 500 transactions. We did 39 transactions last year. We've got a record number of clients in letter of intent right now. So anybody that tells me that this is not an active market and that M&A is dead, Come and talk to me because uh, <laughs> this is not the case. That's accident. The uh, it might be dead in the IPO market and for the billion dollar deals, but sub two hundred million dollar uh, enterprise value companies are seeing a very very high level of interest from buyers. There is a ton of money out there. It's an estimated three point five trillion dollars in the hands of private equity companies right now that are behaving in very very strategic manners to build up their portfolio companies through acquisition and that is what we're seeing a lot of activity around in our business at Quorum. That's if you're interested experience. if you're interested in seeing anything about more about Quorum, please come to our uh, events section corumgroup.com/events and uh, jump in on one of our sessions Well, we we educate about 10,000 tech CEOs every year coming through our events.
1: It's so important to understand where where you're going to end up. Early on, as early as you can, understand the exit path. We love it as investors, and thank you again. And thank you for ending it on a positive note in these conditions. And uh, people don't realize there's a lot of activity happens. It's not the big, the big news and the big drama that that uh, uh, is prevalent everywhere. Okay, thank you very much, Martin. Thanks, Zeke. Thank you for listening to Never a Dull Moment. We hope you've enjoyed the show. And don't forget to rate and review us. Until next time, have a great day.